friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. So right now, we go to the Word of God. I'm breaking off from my series on the Beatitudes right now because, again, I don't want to uh, leave out our 5 p.m. service because Dr. Steve Lawson is going to preach. So I'm going to go to Ezra chapter 9 and Ezra chapter 10, and we will be taking a look at the narrative in the book of Ezra and draw and glean lessons from it. And I'm praying that God would minister to us in a very special way. I also chose Ezra 9 and 10 as a preparation for tomorrow's conference. And so before we start, may I invite you to please rise from your seats and let's come before the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks and praise for this wonderful morning, O oh God. Thank you for your sweet, sweet presence in our midst, O oh God. We thank you, dear Lord, that we could gather together around your word and around worship and declare the most holiest of all names, the name Jesus Christ. And we come before you, Lord, with humble hearts. Our desire is that we might be ministered upon by your word. We pray, O Lord, that you will open our spiritual eyes, our minds, and our hearts, O God, so that we might receive from you. Allow me, Lord, to be used as a vessel for your glory. Allow me to speak truthfully, clearly, and passionately to your people. I pray, Lord, that my preaching will be accompanied by the power of your Holy Spirit so that your name might be glorified, your people edified, and souls converted. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved, we will be very careful to give you back all the glory, all the praises, and all the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Ten Conditions Needed for Revival. And so I'm going to pick some select passages from Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10. Now, just a little word of definition regarding a revival. Oftentimes, revival is used to relate to those who do not know Christ. And I think that is rather unfortunate because revival actually does not concern those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. For one simple reason, we are told in Ephesians chapter 2 that those who do not know Christ are spiritually dead. So you cannot actually revive somebody who is spiritually dead. What spiritually dead people need is actually a spiritual resurrection. And the only way they can be spiritually resurrected is if they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and they enter into what we call as this born-again experience wherein they have this relationship with God, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They become the dwelling place of God here on earth. They experience intimacy and communion with God. So that is what people need. They need a spiritual resurrection. 
So when we speak about revival, we're actually using that term to relate to those who already know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I am so sure that you entered a honeymoon stage with the Lord when you first came to Christ. We always say this, that when you come to Christ, you are so on fire and you are so passionate that you actually want to attend every Bible study that you can attend from Apari all the way to Holo. That is the kind of feeling that you have when you become newly born again. However, I'd like to be able to state that this honeymoon stage that we have with the Lord is something that should continue on for the rest of our lives. The problem, however, is that compromise enters into our spiritual lives. Our, li our, our love towards Christ becomes quite cold. Some of us even backslide. And the result of that is that we lose this passion for God. And so what really needs to happen is a rekindling of that old fire. And if there are dying embers in your heart, they need to be stoked by the fire and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, every minister's dream is a revival. Because when revival happens, people change, the church changes, the entire community changes, and guess what? Even the entire nation changes. And history is replete with a lot of stories coming from nation to nation of tremendous outpourings of God's Holy Spirit, and nations have been changed. I recall exactly what happened in England or Great Britain. It was on the verge of a civil revolution or a civil war, something that actually happened in France. But God used two mighty firebrands by the name of John Wesley and George Whitfield, and they were riding on horseback and they were going from place to place all over England. In my visits to, to England, I happened to come across some of the churches that John Wesley actually planted. And stories up until today are still being told about the ministry of John Wesley and George Whitfield. And so what had happened was God used these two men so mightily that the conversation, the ordinary conversation of people in the streets was the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not talking about business. They were not talking about their jobs. They were not talking about their careers. They were not talking about entertainment. They were talking about Jesus Christ. They were talking about the gospel. They were testifying about how the Lord had converted them and the radical changes that had taken place in their lives. Bars and nightclubs were closed, and crimes hit an all-time low. And thousands upon thousands of people were entering into this wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, wouldn't you want to dream about that happening in our own city, in our own province, and in our own nation? This is the reason why we have our congregational prayer and fasting. And by the way, I'd like to honor uh, one of our guests, he spoke yesterday to us, Brother Bibo Montaña. Uh, he is a preaching elder at CCF, used to be our associate pastor, and God used him mightily yesterday. 
And the reason why we do that is because we have this hope and we have this dream that our nation will experience this mighty moving of God's Spirit. And I tell you, it is going to be an amazing and awesome experience. One thing, though, we have to understand about revival is that we cannot manufacture it. It is something that is the prerogative of God. God alone can actually produce a revival. So our only hope is that we be able to set the conditions which would somehow make it possible for God to somehow move in our hearts to move corporately in the church. And that being the case, we experience a mighty revival. And there are certain conditions that make it possible for God to grant this. Now, our sermon today will be subdivided into two parts, just very simple, actually. So let me just show it to you on the screen. First of all, we're going to talk about the main reason why there is no revival. And I'd like you to pay close attention to everything we have to say. Why? Because, again, we do not want to become the very hindrance, the very impediment, the very obstacle to what God wants to do in this nation as well as in this church. And then we're going to take a positive tone. We're going to talk about the 10 conditions that are needed for revival to take place. So let's move swiftly right now and go straight away to the main reason why there is no revival. Let's have a look at Ezra chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2, and let's read this. It goes, Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Underline and highlight that phrase, according to their abominations. Then it says, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. What had happened here were certain violations that were committed by the people of Israel. They just had recently returned from exile in Babylon. God had chastised them because of their unfaithfulness, because of their idolatry, because of their abominations. And God now was giving them a second chance by allowing them to return back to their own homeland. And now they were situated actually in the Holy Land. They were situated in the Promised Land. And yet, unfortunately, it seemed like they did not learn their lessons from their sad and tragic history. So the things they used to commit, they were now committing them again. Now, one of the prohibitions that God had made under Levitical or Mosaic law is that they were not supposed to intermarry with the other nations. Now, let me tell you the reason why. It was not really a matter of racial discrimination. The reason why God did not want them to intermarry is because God did not want them to be influenced by the pagan worship of these other nations. They were worshiping other gods, 
They were doing a lot of perverse and wicked things. In fact, they would even sacrifice their own children to their own gods. That was what they did. And so God did not want them to be influenced by that. God wanted to insulate them. God wanted them to remain separate as a holy people. But sadly, once again, we find the people disobeying God and intermarrying. And then once again, the abominations were now creeping in and corrupting the community and the nation of Israel. Now, when we try to glean a lesson from that, we believers in Christ sometimes have allowed the entry of worldly things in our lives. Sometimes our mindset has become worldly. Sometimes we're more concerned about this material world than the invisible world that God has promised to us. The Bible is very clear that we are not to focus and fix our eyes on things below, but to fix our eyes on things above. The Bible also calls us to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. God is the end goal of our lives. He is our trophy. He is our finish line. He is our supreme treasure. And so all our energies and everything that we do, as the Bible says, whether we eat or drink, it is, should, it is supposed to be all for the glory of God. And many times we are caught in this web of deception. And what happens is we are taken in by the seduction of the world. We are attracted towards the things of the world. And what happens is slowly but surely, there is a slow drift away from Christ until finally we find our hearts being cold and being backslidden, having no fire and passion for the things of God. Many times we're merely on maintenance mode. We're here, but we're not here. We're here physically, but our minds are elsewhere. We're singing the songs of God, but our affections are not with God at all. And this is the reason why we have to be very careful. Marriage to the world is enmity with God. Let me quote to you James chapter 4, verse 4. It says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, how many here would like to be an enemy of God? Could you please raise your hands? No, nobody raised their hands. Praise God. But then again, let me just tell you this. We cannot remain on neutral gear. And some of us think that, well, you know, I, I don't hate God. God is not my enemy. But you know, right now in my life, I'm taking it easy. I'm merely on neutral gear. I'm not moving forward, but my momentum is actually carrying me somewhere. So I'm just going to trust what is happening to me right now. I'm merely on neutral gear. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you cannot be on neutral gear. 
The only way for us is to press forward. The only thing that is needed in our Christian lives is to press forward. That is exactly what Paul says. He says, forgetting the things that lies behind, pressing on towards the goal of Christ Jesus. So it's always propelling ourselves forward that is needed. We cannot be on neutral mode. And that is why, friends, let me tell you this. If we are not following the will of God, if we are not passionate about the things of God, I submit that many of us have actually befriended the world. And the Bible says, if that happens, we have become an enemy of God. And I hope that in this room, this, this conviction might be something that will propel us towards an intimate, loving, faithful, steadfast relationship towards God. Because, friends, that is the only thing that will bring fulfillment and meaning to us. Just very recently, one of the Taipans in our country, very young, the son of uh, Lu Shutan, died at a very young age. And guess what he was doing at that time? He was playing basketball. This guy was very athletic. This guy even coached a basketball team, if my memory serves me right. And he was always on the go. He was always on the run. Definitely, he was, he was very rich. He was a billionaire. But then all of a sudden, his life is taken away from him just like that in a basketball game. Now, let me ask you this question. If you were that person who was on the playing court and you lost your life, how do you think things would appear before the Bema judgment seat of God? Would you be able to raise your head up high thinking and knowing that you have done well in this earthly life? and that you have served the purposes of God. If that is the case, well and good, keep up the good work. But then, is it possible that when you come face to face with your Lord, Master, and Savior, you will have to bow your head because you realize that your whole life actually became a waste. Now, you do not want that happening. And sadly, this is the case with some people in Israel at that time. They had wasted their opportunities. They had wasted their second chance before God. And right now, they were lingering in the matter of sin. Now, there are 10 conditions needed for revival to take place. Again, as I mentioned to you, we cannot manufacture revival. It is the sovereign prerogative of God. But there are certain conditions by which God, in His loving mercy, can somehow move in the hearts of God's people and produce a revival. That is what we are hoping for. That is what we are dreaming about. So the first is this, a willingness to worship, obey, and follow God's will without compromise. Now let me take you back in time as we examine this narrative, Ezra had just led some exiles back into Israel. Remember, they were in Babylon. 
They were serving uh, the Babylonian, their Babylonian masters, but God gave them a chance. So Ezra, who was a priest, and so what had happened was a returning back to the homeland did not simply mean that they were returning back to their own homes or returning back to where they used to live. But it was a returning back to the worship of God because Jerusalem was the only designated place in the Old Testament for people to worship. And that is why going back to Jerusalem meant that they would return back to the temple worship. They would have their priests once again. They would have their burnt offerings once again. They would have atoning sacrifices once again. And that is exactly what God wanted to happen, a return back into their worship of God, a return back to obedience, a return back to the will of God. Yet sadly, as I mentioned to you, that did not happen. Instead of returning back to worship, obedience, and following God's will, they had disobeyed God. And again, going back to Jerusalem meant that you wanted to follow God's will, you wanted to follow God's laws. And friends, let me tell you this. Our coming together and our gathering together as believers and as a community of those who name the name of Jesus Christ is a wonderful thing. It always brings joy when, whenever we gather together and we always have these expectant hearts whenever we gather and we worship. But you know, it's not just about singing songs. It's not about, just about singing, seeing our Christian friends or meeting up with our small group. It's about really devoting and consecrating our hearts towards God. This is exactly the reason why we come together. Because our desire is that we might be refreshed in the very presence of God. Our desire is to worship, obey, and, God's, and obey God's will. That is what brings meaning to our gathering together. Otherwise, it is actually a waste of our time. If we do not have that intentionality and that purpose to worship, obey, and follow God's will, we have simply wasted our time. God is not looking upon us with favor. God is not looking at us and saying that He is well pleased with our lives. So we're just going through the motions of religious and spiritual exercises, but they do not have any substance, and it has lost its real essence. And so we don't want that happening. Here's a second condition that needs to happen as we find it in Ezra 9, 5 to 7, the prayer of the righteous and not the self-righteous. Quoting verses 5 to 7, here we find uh, Ezra speaking or narrating to us what had happened. It says, But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn. And I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, 
My God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. I'd like you to take note of the pronouns here. The pronoun I, the pronoun our. Then it says in verse 7, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. Now, in so far as the record of Scripture is concerned, we know Ezra to be a righteous man. Because we are told in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, that the practice of Ezra was to study the Word of God, to obey it, and then only then will he begin teaching it. And yet here we find that he was not self-righteous. Here we find that he found his worth in God himself. He did not see any worth in himself. He was not looking down upon his countrymen just like this priest, or just like this Pharisee rather, at the temple who said to God, I thank thee, O God, I am not like this tax gatherer. He did not have that self-righteous attitude. Rather, he had a righteousness that was based on God, based on the atoning sacrifice of God and not on himself. So how do we differentiate the righteous and the self-righteous? The righteous person identifies himself with the sins of the people. There is a sense wherein we sin individually against God. And we find that in the confession of David in the book of Psalms. He said, against thee, O Lord, against thee have I sinned. So there is a sin wherein, yes, we do sin individually against God, but there is also a sense wherein we actually sin corporately against God. God doesn't just look at us as individuals. He does that, of course. But He also looks at us as a believing community. He looks at us in a corporate way, such that sometimes... Even our own individual sins, listen well, even our own individual sins can actually have a negative impact on the entire community. Now you might say, how can that be, Pastor Mel? How can my sin actually affect the sins or how can my sin affect the community of the church? Well, one good example would be Achan. Achan alone was the one who hid some of the things that were actually prohibited by God. And what was the result of Achan's stealing? What was the result of Achan's hiding these things that were forbidden? The result was the entire nation of Israel lost in war against an enemy which they thought they could easily defeat. And yet they were beaten. Why? Because of the sin of Achan. And I'd like you to be mindful, brothers and sisters. As we take a look at Scripture, we are not to ever think, well, I'm just an island. Brother Bibo quoted 
a wonderful quotation yesterday which says, No man is an island. And that is so true. No man is an island. You cannot say, I'm just an island. What I do doesn't affect everybody. What I do doesn't affect the church. Well, I have news for you. Whatever you do privately has an effect even on an entire congregation. It even has an effect on an entire nation. So do not ever belittle or minimize your sin thinking that, you know what? I'm not guilty of what's happening in church. Maybe not. Maybe you are. And doesn't that convict us that our sin that we have committed in private actually affects the worship of the church? Here and we realize that there is a responsibility that is laid upon us by God, not only individually but also corporately. And we find once again an, a good example in Daniel chapter 9 verses 3 to 6. Again, talking about Daniel, Daniel had an impeccable record. As a government official, he was very righteous and there was no corruption in him. And that is why there were some people in the Persian kingdom who wanted to pull him down, but he was the big problem they had. They could not find anything wrong with Daniel. They could not find any fault in him. And this is what they said. If we're going to find anything wrong with this man, it has to do with his faith. It has to do with his religion. So guess what? They make a suggestion to the king to make a decree which was actually implemented and passed on that nobody was to pray except to Darius the king himself. Now, Daniel could not betray his faith. He could not betray his covenant relationship with Yahweh. And because of that, he prayed in the direction of Jerusalem. That's how the Jews prayed. Whenever they were in exile, they still prayed towards Jerusalem. So if they were in the east, they would be, they would be praying towards the west, towards the direction of Jerusalem. When they were in the west, they would be praying in the direction of the east towards Jerusalem as well. And that's what Daniel did. And it was not that he was exaggerating. He was just doing the common thing that he was doing on a daily basis. And it was this very reason, by the way, that brought him into the den of lions. But God spared him because he was innocent. But have a look on the prayer of Daniel. Look at Daniel 9, beginning at verse 3 all the way to verse 6. It says, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great an awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We, no, notice the pronoun here. He did not say I. He said we. And again, notice he had an impeccable record, but he identifies himself with the people. He says we have sinned. 
committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Isn't it amazing? A man with an impeccable record identifying himself with the sins of the entire nation. This is what made him righteous, not self-righteous. And this is the reason why his prayer was effective. Again, the book of James says, the prayer of a righteous man avails much, or in some translations, accomplishes much. Much can be accomplished. Why? Because we have a mighty and awesome God, and nothing is difficult with Him. Nothing is impossible with the God that we serve. Amen? Our God is able to do over, above, beyond what we ask or even think of. That is the God we serve. Amen? Our God is not a dead God. Our God is alive. But again, we go back and we ask ourselves the question, if God is so mighty and so powerful... Why is there so much chaos? Why is the world so messy? And sometimes we even ask, why is the church so messy? If God is so almighty and so all-powerful, how can the church, the body of Christ, be messy as well? Again, the fault never lies with God. It has never been the fault of God when the church fails, the failure belongs to us, never with God. I'd like to share to you what happens when righteous people begin to pray. Dr. R.A. Torrey, one of those great preachers of long ago, illustrates the definiteness of prayer, and he relates a story, and let me just read this. He goes, up in a little town in Maine, things were pretty dead some years ago. The churches were not accomplishing anything. There were a few godly men in the churches, and they said, here we are, only uneducated laymen, but something must be done in this town. Let us form a praying band. We will all center our prayers on one man, just one man. Who shall it be? They picked out the hardest man in town, a hopeless drunkard, and they centered all their prayers on him. In one week's time, you know what happened? He was converted. Then they centered their prayers on the next hardest man in town. And soon, guess what happened? He was converted. Then they took up another and another until, listen well, until within a year, two or three hundred were brought to a saving relationship with Christ. Amen? It doesn't get any better than that. Hallelujah. Amen? Two to three hundred people. Give the Lord a big hand. 
And the fire began to spread into the surrounding country. Definite prayer for those in the prison house of sin is the need of the day. Leonard Ravenhill, who happens, by the way, to be one of the mentors of Paul Washer, said this, No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. And continuing on, he says, Poverty-stricken as the church is today, she is most stricken in the place of prayer. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. And that is why, friends, let me just tell you this. Some people think prayer is the work of lazy people. Some people think that prayer is... Is something that people do because they can't do anything. Well, let me tell you this. The Bible doesn't see it that way. The Bible sees prayer as work. And it is a work that somehow establishes the kingdom of God here on earth. Why do you think the Lord would teach us the Lord's prayer in the first place? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reason why Jesus teaches us that is because we are, we are able to employ the powers of heaven when we come before him in humility and in righteousness. And when he sees that our prayers are according to his will, he answers in all his glory and in all his power. Third, God needs a faithful remnant. Ezra chapter 9, verse 8, please. It says, but now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us, listen well, an escape remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Let me just say this. God doesn't need the majority. He just needs a faithful remnant. Can I say it once again? God doesn't need the majority. He just needs a minority that is a faithful remnant to God. God is not actually impressed by numbers. If you've if you follow the Gospels, what do we find there? Well, there were multitudes of people who followed the Lord Jesus Christ. There were times when Jesus had to ride a boat just simply to distance himself from the crowd that was pressing on, on him. 
Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were following him from Capernaum to Galilee to Jerusalem to Bethany to Bethlehem, all other places. People were just following him. Even in the wilderness, people were following him. But in Pentecost, in the upper room, there were no multitudes. There were only 120 disciples. No multitudes, no thousands of people, but only 120 people who was a faithful remnant to God. And that was all God needed because the Bible says these 120 men and women turned the world upside down. John Wesley was right. When he said, give me 100 men who fear nothing but God, and I will shake the world. How much more would a few good men, good and fervent men, affect the ministry than a multitude of lukewarm ones? Let me say it again. How much more would a few good and fervent men affect the ministry than a multitude of lukewarm ones? Let me ask you this question. Where do you identify yourself with? Do you identify yourself with the multitude or do you identify yourself with this remnant, this faithful remnant? And you know what? It's in the kingdom of God, it's so easy to switch from the multitude to the faithful remnant. All it requires is confession and repentance. But in the same manner that it is easy for the multitude to become the remnant, it is also easy for the remnant to become part of the multitude. As A.W. Tozer said, one second were holy, the next second were not. And that is why intentionality, determination, steadfastness is very important in the Christian life. A fourth principle is this. Do not be envious of the peace and the prosperity of the world so as to seek it obsessively. And you find that in Ezra chapter 9 verse 12. It says here, So now do not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. Bible says never seek their peace or their prosperity. Pastor Bebo was sharing a story yesterday. There was this billionaire, actually a Christian, who had backslidden and invited him for a short talk. And so when this billionaire picked him up, by the way, picked him up with a Mercedes-Benz and opened the door, Pastor Bibo went in and he just felt luxury all of a sudden. He felt the comfy seats and he was saying, wow, this is how a Mercedes-Benz feels with all the comfy seats. But then again, this billionaire opened up his heart and began to share about the emptiness of his life, that his life had become hollow, that he felt worthless. All of the billions that he had, 
did not have any effect in so far as making him a happier person or a more fulfilled or a more satisfied person. And there, right there in that Mercedes-Benz, he made a confession and he made this resolution that he was going to change. He was going to turn a new leaf and he was now going to return back to God. Never, never be envious of the peace and the prosperity of the world. Not that God cannot prosper you. He can. As the book of Deuteronomy says, it is God who gives us the power to become wealthy. But you know, even those who are truly wealthy know that their treasure is not in this. Their treasure is God. Amen? God is their chief and supreme treasure. Amen? So which brings us to the next half. And what do we need to do, therefore, if we have these realizations? Well, the first thing that needs to happen is genuine repentance. In Ezra 10, verse 1, it says here, Now while Ezra was praying and what? Making confession weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel for the people, listen well, wept bitterly. Let me tell you what is lacking in the 21st century church. What is lacking in the 21st century church is a lot of weeping. The 21st century church is no longer weeping for its sins. It has minimized sin. It has marginalized sin. And, you know, we have treated God casually. And we think that, well, we're fine for as long as I come to, to church every Sunday. That's fine. It doesn't really matter. As I mentioned to you, many of us are simply on maintenance mode. And we don't really care what God... Uh, feels or how God looks at us. We don't even care if, if the favor and the grace of God is upon us for as long as we're alive and for as long as we can have food on the table and, and shelter a roof on top of us. It doesn't really matter what happens to us, and I think that is rather unfortunate. Many of us fail to realize that when we sin and offend God, we pain the Father heart of God. And it's quite interesting. You know, we were with our grandchildren just very recently, and one granddaughter I was, I was tickling and I was playing with because she was holding on to the key of the house. And then my other granddaughter came and, you know, she wanted to get the key as well. She's a lot older. And so I said, no, don't, don't get the key. And then she said, how come with, with my other Apo, I was laughing and with her, I was not laughing together with her. And I thought to myself, even laughing right now becomes an issue with my grandchildren. But then, you know, my, my heart just went out 
And as a grandfather, you, you always want your grandchildren to really feel very, very special, all of them, without any bias or prejudice. And, and that's the heart of God towards us. Sometimes we, we look at ourselves and we think we're these puny, tiny little beings and God doesn't care for us. I'm here to tell you God loves you. I'm here to tell you that, that He cares for you because the Bible says that even, you know, do you know that the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that He tasted death for each and every one of us? You know what that means? Even if you were the only person in the world, Christ would still die for you. Christ was not simply dying for the multitude. He was dying for you as an individual, personally. That's how much He loves you. And you know what? Satan blinds us, you know, for, from, from this love, this, this intense, powerful, and passionate love that God has. And that's why we pain the heart of God when we are unfaithful to Him. And we need to come and confess and weep bitterly before Him. Which brings us to the next, which is confession. Genuine repentance brings us to confession. We must admit that we are sinners. Leonard Ravenhill states this. But sometimes we have this tendency to exonerate ourselves and come up with excuses about our own sins. We, we use euphemisms. We soften the sins that we, we commit. And, and you know what true confession is? It is saying the same thing that God has to say about what we do. That's what real confession is all about. It is saying the same thing that God is saying about our sin. If it's pride, then it's pride. If it's lying, then it's lying. If it's a temper, then it's a temper. It's, if it's impatience, then it's impatience. If it's lust, then it's lust. If it's covetousness, then it's covetousness. Don't call it any other name. Leonard Ravenhill said this, the other fellow has a devilish temper. Mine is just righteous indignation. She is touchy. My irritability is just a case of nerves. He is covetous. I'm just expanding my business. He is stubborn. I have convictions. She is proud. I have tastes. See how sometimes we shift our sins and come up with these nice terms and euphemisms, trying to exonerate ourselves, being that lawyer, inner lawyer, trying to defend us. But in the presence of God, even a prophet like Isaiah had to say, Woe is me, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Something that he probably never realized. Why? Because he was a prophet. But in the presence of God, that's what happens. That's why in Ezra 10, verse 2, it says, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God. Say it as it is. If you're unfaithful, then say, you have been unfaithful. We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. 
Now, question, how do we confess? Three guidelines. Number one, sin that is Godward is confessed to God. Sin that is humanward, you confess it to the person. F.B. Mayer told of a revival meeting that was dragging along without signs of any success until in the evening there was an elder who arose and he said, Pastor, I don't believe there's going to be a revival for as long as Brother Jones and I are not speaking with each other. So this elder went to Jones and he said, Brother Jones, we have not spoken for five years. Let's bury the hatchet. Here's my hand. A sob broke from the audience. Soon another elder arose and said, Pastor, I've been saying these mean things about you behind your back and saying nice things in front of you. I want you to forgive me. Many arose and confessed the wrongs, and God began to visit them. A revival swept over that community for three long years. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Sin that is group ward, however, you confess it to the group. Will M. Houghton shares this story, and it's quite convicting. He says, I remember when, as a young Christian worker, I held an evangelistic campaign at a crossroads, at a church at a crossroads way out on the prairie. It was just a little church. There was a center aisle, and the seats went over against the wall from that aisle. We had very good congregations, but nothing else. After several nights of trying to preach and giving an invitation, the pastor said to me, years ago, a family in this church quarreled, and the community has taken sides in the matter. The aisle, he says, that divides the chairs, that is the dividing line between those families. So you have one family or one group of people on the other side, they're actually fighting with the people on the other side. And the people on this side, they are at odds with the people on the other side. So there is really a, a literal dividing line between those families and those church members. And so, he said, And the story continues on. He says, one thing I don't know what happened, but when the meeting ended, the two who had a grievance against each other met in front of the pulpit, each asking for forgiveness. Then the thing broke loose. There were just two nights left. The night we closed the campaign, the pastor stood with me on the doorstep, and he said, try to look at the horizon. And as far as your eyes can see, all the homes, all the people, as far as your eyes can see, are now here in the church. There was a mighty revival that took place. People were converted to Christ. And that is something I want to happen. 
I want us, brothers and sisters, to see our relatives, our cousins, our aunties, our grandparents, our parents, our classmates, our friends, our neighbors coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I hope you're not saying that's not my problem. Maybe it is our problem. Maybe God is not moving because something is wrong with us. Maybe something needs to be settled with God. And number seven actually gives us one of the things that needs to happen, a unity of righteousness. Can you have a look at Ezra chapter 10, verses 3 and 4? It says, so now, let us, again, be mindful of the pronoun, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you, be courageous, and act. There was a unity of righteousness. And that's something we want to happen with Living Word. We want to have a unity of righteousness. We want to have a unity that binds us together because we are all walking in the light. We are all holding on to the truth and we are all practicing the truth in our lives. That is what we happen. And let me tell you this, when we have this unity of righteousness, it will create a powerful impact in our city as well as in this province and maybe even in the entire nation. Because we live in this fishbowl existence and people are looking at us and they're watching us. And in truth, there are some honest, sincere seekers. They want to come to the Lord, but they want to watch our lives and see if there is any genuineness in our lives. When they see that genuineness, then they will come to Christ. But some of us, unfortunately, have become the very stumbling block, the very obstacle, the very impediment for some people to come to Christ. There must be a unity of righteousness. Number eight, maybe we need to consider fasting. By the way, that's the reason why we do congregational prayer and fasting. At least we fast for, for breakfast. And just to surrender your meal just so you could, you know, you could have the attention of God is something that God looks at. By the way, the Bible does not say if you fast, which makes it optional. It says when you fast, which tells us we do need to fast. It's only a question of timing. So again, just take note of that. Here's what happened in verse 6 of Ezra 10. It says, Then Ezra rose from before the house of God, and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Elishim. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. His fasting was an expression of what was inside his heart. His fasting was an expression that he was aligning himself with the very will and the very heart of God. And that's what needs to happen. We need to feel the heartbeat of God. Because after all, God created us 
and wired us to himself, and therefore, he has every right to every fiber of our being. Number nine, the purging of the wicked needs to happen. Take a look at Ezra 10, verses 7 and 8. It says, They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited, and he himself, listen well, excluded from the assembly of the exiles. Now, that sounds like excommunication. That sounds like disfellowship. And some people don't want to hear that word, excommunication or disfellowship. But let me tell you this. Sometimes, if you want a revival taking place, it needs to happen. Let me quote to you 1 Corinthians 5 and following. It says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Listen well to verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or with slender or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to, you would have to go out of the world. Verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. In other words, somebody who claims to be a Christian. With any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not, listen well, not even to eat with such a one. Not even to eat with such a one. Wow, Pastor Mel, that's harsh. Pastor Mel, that's, that's really bad. No, friends, it's called tough love. Say tough love. Say it louder, please. Louder, please. Sometimes that's what needs to happen. That's why... Revival is sometimes not about addition. Sometimes it's about subtraction. I like what Moody Monthly wrote in an article, very short one. It says, when I talk about blessing, I not only mean additions, but subtractions. A pastor came to one of his fellow pastors and said, we've had a revival in our church. The other man replied, that's good. How many were added to your church? None were added, but 10 were subtracted. That's spiritual prosperity. It may mean subtraction. It's some of our churches had the unconverted deacons subtracted revival would come, according to this article. 
Again, it's not about addition. It could be about subtraction. And finally, there must be a willingness to pay the cost. There is a cost to Pentecost. Could you say this with me? There is a cost. Say it louder. There is a cost to Pentecost. Say it louder, please. There is a cost to Pentecost. So what did the Jews pay for? Well, here's what happened. It says in verse 44, All these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children, and they made the decision that they would now had to cut this ungodly relationship. Now that, of course, was painful, but it had to be done to preserve the purity of the nation. Somebody said, spiritual expansion is expensive and at times excruciating. Are you prepared for vision at this top price demand, the loss of a friend or a career? There are no reduced rates for revolution of soul. If you only want to be saved, sanctified, and satisfied, then the Lord's battle has no need of you. When we humble ourselves before God and fulfill these ten conditions, hopefully, by God's sovereign grace and mercy, we have a revival. Let me close with Isaiah 57, 14 and 15. Please listen well. It says, and it will be said, build up, build up, Prepare the way. Remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. Let me say it again. Remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. May God bless the preaching of His Word. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes at this time? While every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Every preaching demands a response. I did not preach my word. I preached God's word. It was not me speaking to you. It was God through his word. And may I ask you this question? Are there obstacles that you need to remove in your life? Are there Isaacs that you need to surrender? Are there idols in your heart that you need to smash and bash? Are there compromises in your life that you need to settle? Is your heart cold? 
Is it backslidden? Is it dry? Is it indifferent? Is it apathetic? After hearing this sermon, I hope you're not saying, been there, done that. I hope that you allow the Word of God to sink deep into your hearts. Because let me tell you this. The love of the Father and the love of Jesus Christ is incomparable to any human love. Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you as friends. I take it a mighty privilege and honor that God could call me His friend. That He calls it a privilege. to be called our brother. He's our brother. He's our friend. He is our, not only our master, our savior, our king, but our friend. The God who cares, the God who loves us, the God who died on the cross. There is no other expression of love that can surpass the love of Christ on the cross. Would you at this time be willing to submit yourself to God and say, God, I confess my sins. God, I was unfaithful to you. God, my heart is cold. God, my heart is backslidden. God, I have allowed certain sins to dwell in my heart. Lord, there's pride. There's, there's anger, Lord. There's bitterness. There's lust. There's, there's materialism, Lord. I, I ask for forgiveness. Can we at this moment just allow God to speak to us? I'm going to give you a moment just to talk to God at this time. Our Father, the Word of God has been preached. And here's my prayer, O oh God, that your word will not return to you null and void, but that it might accomplish the very purpose by which you have sent it for. Lord, even individual as well as corporate revival is a work of your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, right now, begin your work in us and complete it. And we pray, Father, that we will get out of this sanctuary with hearts that know that we have encountered you. 
I pray that we might leave this place touched by the power of your spirit. And Lord, we thank you for everything. We thank you that we could also give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And whatever has been achieved today, we give you back all the glory, praises, and thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord.